0: In today's first episode, I am delighted to introduce to you Stephanie Graham, a karate black belt and jiu-jitsu blue belt. She's a full-time instructor at Jiu-Jitsu 4 Ways, based in Johannesburg. Let's dive right in. You're about to experience the new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are what you love and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change so that we create a healthier, happier and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. So fast forward to today and I learned that you're a full-time martial arts instructor, BJJ instructor. Yes as a blue belt, female blue belt, which is like super rare, We need more of those. So tell us, how did this come to be that you're now a full-time instructor? Uh, there's so many aspects to my journey,
1: but it's uh, start in the present. I am now a full-time instructor at Gracie Jiu-Jitsu 4 Ways in Johannesburg, South Africa. And as you mentioned before, it's so rare for maybe a blue belt female to be able to do this on the mats. And what's great about uh, the environment and space that I coach in, I have a very supportive head coach. And um, he obviously has all of the trust and put these programs in my hands. And so it kind of started with me coaching. We have a women-empowered self-defense program at our jiu gym. So we're part of Gracie University. Their headquarters are in Los Angeles. And they developed this women-empowered self-defense program. And that's kind of my passion project. And uh, where I feel the most within my power is like uh, building women's confidence and uh, really seeing how they grow on the mat. But in addition to that, I also coach our bully-proof programs, so our kids' classes and our co-ed programs with the master cycle students and just more of a sports jiu-jitsu aspect as well. So yeah, that's kind of present day what I'm doing at the moment. Lots of jiu-jitsu every day, which I absolutely
0: love. So that are also mixed classes, right? So you do not only women or kids, but also uh, all genders. Yes,
1: We have kind of two
0: programs when it comes to
1: Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So any new starters that come into the program, we have what we call our Combatives Program. This is more Jiu-Jitsu for self-defense. So they're learning a foundation of Jiu-Jitsu techniques, but they're able to apply it in a self-defense scenario immediately and it's kind of our onboard beginners program at the same time so they learn the basics of like side control position, mount guard, so that once they actually go through that program and they move into our master cycle program which deals with jiu-jitsu from more a sport perspective, at least they have a solid foundation when they finally start sparring and rolling with other people and that's our co-ed program. So men and women can join that program and then they move
0: up into master cycle as well awesome thank you so much so how okay so now we know what you do now how did you end up there <laughs> yes. Um, I thought a lot about this and like, why
1: am I so passionate and uh, why, why is the Women Empowered program so special to me? And I try to think back to like my childhood. What was a moment or what, something, what was something that really was imprinted on me as a child that made me do what I want to do today? And from a very young age, I was too young to understand this at the time, but I was about maybe nine years old at the time, and I discovered that my mom was a survivor of sexual assault. And uh, at that time, I was still a little bit young to understand what what that really meant. Um, and throughout my childhood, I always felt like um, I could see my mom's healing process and how she had to heal from that trauma herself as a child. And it was by a non-stranger that actually committed this assault. And I guess that really left an imprint in myself as a, a young woman or a child. And I I always wished that I could protect her or, or help heal her. And maybe in a sense that kind of growing up with a mother who was a survivor of salt, um, this really kind of led me eventually into the space where I am now able to give women that confidence and provide them a space where they can find their voice and, and boundary sets and feel like they are worth defending. And I guess in some sense, like that is what slowly put me on the path to being who I am now and being the head coach for our Women Empowered Program.
0: That is very powerful. Like, it's already traumatic when somebody, of course, themselves go through it. But there's also a lot of studies done on people that witness it, maybe not even directly, but like the aftermath when you're kids, that you just things, as you say, that you don't quite understand, but you do feel things, you do notice things. So I can totally understand that you're like, I don't want this to happen to her again, to me, nor anyone else. I think that's a very powerful why why you want to help women to find their confidence, their competence, Um, So that they will hopefully never become victim or if so, that they have tools to work with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's definitely been a huge part of um, me knowing why I do what I do and uh, just being able to give that to other ladies and not only ladies also the men on the mats, you know providing confidence to them when they come in to learn self-defense and even my kids with the Bullyproof program children who are bullied at school or lack confidence and i have so many stories of parents coming to me as well and saying you know this is happening to my child at school he's very shy he's very gentle natured and then seeing how they grow in confidence on the mats as well. So just in terms of all aspects of every program that I coach, I I can see that and it really inspires me and uh, makes me feel quite emotional,
0: really. It does. I think like um, I always learned that when your why doesn't make you emotional, the why is not big enough or it's not your real why. So I think the fact that you get emotional about talking about it, then, you know, you know, this is, this is you this is your why so so tell me so when people come to you for instance a kid being bullied or a woman that may think like how oh, i experienced this and this i want to learn how to defend myself um how do you help students that come already with trauma or with you know some struggles um so As we talk about, uh, and this is
1: kind of where my desire to understand more about trauma and how it impacts the body and also psychologically, this also was what geared me towards the trauma informed approach to coaching mixed martial arts, because if I just backtrack a bit to when I was a student myself in the Women Empowered Program. And at the time, my head instructor was leading these classes. And uh, him and I did a seminar. So every few months, we do a free self-defense seminar where any lady from beginner to wherever they are, whether they've ever done a martial art before, they can come and we give them a few techniques, but more uh, self-defense mindset and philosophy. And I remember going to my first Seminar and one of the techniques, uh, the ladies uh, kind of not had a flashback, but maybe had a trigger or a bit of a panic attack on the mats. And I remember her sitting in the corner, and she was quite upset about the situation that happened. And I stood there, and I felt so helpless. And I just thought, I don't know, I don't know how to hold space for her. I don't know how to bring her back, and that that really frustrated me because I felt like I, I need to know no, more. And at that stage I wasn't even an instructor yet. And I was like, I need to know more so that if this ever happens on the mat again, I can help someone and guide someone through this. And as we learn uh, in the course as well, like in terms of widening people's window of tolerance, one of the most beautiful stories, success stories I could say I've heard that came directly out of our head gym at Gracie Jiu Jitsu in Los Angeles was there was a woman that was assaulted on a beach and she told the instructors that this happened to her. And when she went to the police station and said, what do I do now? The the only advice the police officer could offer was like, well, there's, there's a Gracie here. They do self-defense. Like maybe you can learn self-defense and for a long time, when she started at the gym, they obviously were very good with the way that they approached her, but she used to have violent nightmares of the the assault or the attack that happened. And one night, in her nightmare, she dreamt that she armbarred the man that assaulted her. And she said, after that moment in that dream where something that was a nightmare turned into this Success story where she felt empowered and she changed the ending or the outcome of that situation. She never had a nightmare again. And that's kind of what I try and do on my mats as well is if I have ladies who um, maybe have experienced a situation or scenario, we obviously have trigger warnings. I now have the tools and techniques that I need for regrounding anybody or just really guiding them through the program in a way that they feel safe. And are not re traumatized because many positions in Jiu Jitsu can be very triggering. In our self defense program, we teach, you know, defenses on how to get up out of chokes. Someone sitting in the mount position, and we've seen this before in competitions, but hands on the throats, and especially chokes in particular are very triggering for ladies and to be able to teach it in a way where they feel in a safe space and they can slowly widen their window of tolerance for this. And then they're able to do more jujitsu and, and uh, uh, ramp up the intensity of a technique. And then maybe in some scenarios um, experience a very healing moment, whether it be through converting a nightmare into an absolute dream where the outcome has changed and they are the victor. And uh, that's kind of what i like to try and do
0: on the mats with the programs. Yeah, that's also huge. I I like the the story you told me about this lady with the nightmare that turned into a very empowering dream, because in the end, as we know from neuroscience, the brain doesn't know the difference between reality and fiction, which is why in self-defense courses, when you replay a specific scenario could be something that they experience. And, you know, when it happened, they were the victim, but this time they are the victim. That can completely change, kind of how their brains are wired. And I think it's so, it's so amazing how we, in some ways, can hack the brain. Sometimes also for good. In terms of that, when the brain doesn't know what's real and what's unreal, you can, of course, play with that. So I find amazing that her found newfound competence in being able to unbar. And in her dream, she unbarred the aggressor, and it just set her free because she knows, I can, I can get out. And I think that is just so empowering. I think martial arts, when done well, of course, can can be indeed so empowering. So tell me, like, what? why do you think, because you already touched upon that many BJ positions can be absolutely re-traumatizing for people. Why do you think that coaches should all understand trauma and how to, um, you know, how to deal with it? Because there are also many coaches that say, oh, well, if you've troubles with mount, or if you have trouble with being choked, then maybe jiu-jitsu is not for you. What would you say to these, to these coaches?
1: Uh, obviously, totally disagree with that. We also have another phrase that we like to say to sh- new time students. And we say, there is no such thing as a bad student only bad coaches and we wholeheartedly believe that because we believe that jiu-jitsu is for everybody so if a technique isn't working for a student or or maybe they find a particular position triggering and now i can even move on to injury in jiu-jitsu or people who come to a jiu-jitsu gym with existing injuries and then they say look i can't move my hip in this way or or, this position is uncomfortable for me and then you have an instructor say well that's the way we do it or okay well then maybe jujitsu isn't for you i would say that um they need more knowledge or maybe they're not the best coach for that particular student because jiu-jitsu should be accessible for everybody regardless of whether they have injury or trauma and if somebody is struggling with the position you should be able to adapt that position in order to assist them so that they still have the ability to do jujitsu on the mat My head instructor had full reconstructive surgery on his knee. He's done lots of wrestling in his life and for a long time he wasn't able to roll on the mats and he relied on instructors like myself and some of our other coaches to lead the classes. And he's recently got back on the mats and he has to modify so many positions because he's unable to do it the way that he did it before. But that doesn't mean he can't do jiu jitsu. He just has to modify the techniques. And jiu jitsu is constantly evolving. We've seen how the game's changing in sports. And and I mean, then you get leg locks. I mean, we always get kind of these new trends in jiu jitsu where a new submission. I mean, with Gordon Ryan at the moment, we've got smother taps and uh, things like that. So jiu jitsu is adaptable, you know, the, we can adapt the position for other people. And that's why I think there's no such thing as bad students, only bad instructors. And uh, everyone can learn, but not everyone can teach. And if you want to be able to teach, then you should be willing to know that you don't know everything, but you can gain that knowledge. And that's why I furthered my studies, not only in jiu-jitsu, but then how I can hold space for people um, with regards to
0: trauma, triggers, injuries. Um Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that many people forget that just being good in jujitsu, so like, you know, that you know a lot about techniques, you're maybe a very, um, you know, successful champion or competitor, that that on its own doesn't make you a good instructor. I do like to say a difference between trainers and instructors, or tra- or instructors slash coaches, because I think in trainer, a train just trains you, that's where you get the techniques from, and you either make it or not. Well, I think in instructor or more so a coach is somebody that kind of approaches learning from a holistic perspective, that maybe understands that okay, I need to meet the people where they are at instead of expecting them that they meet me where I am at and what I want to do with them on this particular day. I mean, I have to sometimes with yoga too, you know, I I always prepare a sequence, but then they come in and then sometimes I'm like, I feel the atmosphere, the room, and I'm like, nope, I think they need something more active. Or I'm like, nope, they really need something more, something calming, something soothing. So I just throw it out the window and I do something else. I think this flexibility as a coach is super important. And also, as you say about physical injuries, mental injuries count too. So when we can modify training for somebody who cannot use the legs as much because of many uh, knee operations, we should be able to do the same for people with with mental injuries. We should also be able to tailor make, so to speak, the classes so that they also can train hard. So I think that's a very good and nice perspective.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say on that note, just comparing physical injuries to mental injuries. That's also one of my favorite analogies is like, okay, every jujitsu gym has a first aid kit. So when somebody scratches themselves or is bleeding, we always can walk to the first aid kit and we can bandage up the wound. And the same should be for mental first aid. So if somebody has a trigger or a flashback, what is your first aid kit to be able to assist them on the mat as well? Well, it's just as important
0: it really is because there's so much you can do right and wrong right both with physical and mental injuries and as you say it is knowledge and then of course applied knowledge but it is indeed not something that is super hard to get I mean of course as you know you're a graduate from our program the five five method where we go dive deep into what is trauma the neurobiology of trauma but also personal development because When you know all there is to know about trauma, but you cannot apply it, you know, you're not approachable, like people don't dare approaching you or maybe you have your own limiting beliefs, obstructing you, becoming the, you know, the coach you could be. It's hard to still be trauma-informed. So I think really like becoming a teacher, an instructor, a coach, however you want to, that is a whole different skill set apart from, of course, that you need to become good in techniques and you need to understand, of course, Jiu-Jitsu because otherwise you have not much to teach. But apart from that, you also really need to learn how do people learn how do people maintain knowledge how indeed when they have baggage both physically or mentally how can we cater to their needs and I think there's a whole different um whole different ball game that needs mastery absolutely So then I would like to move on to the next question it's like so how did you start with jiu-jitsu so I mean we We learned that your mom inspired you in terms of that you also want to kind of protect her. Had that something to do with that, that you chose martial arts specifically, or did you also have other reasons why you choose martial arts in general and why BJ in particular? It's
1: it's quite interesting. I don't know exactly where my passion for martial arts came from. Like my earliest memory of wanting to do any form of martial arts, I just remember watching... The Karate Kid, as maybe a five or six year old. And there was also a series of movies. I don't know if you remember them, but they were called The Three Ninjas. And it was about these three little boys who were coached by their grandpa on how to, like, you know, do backflips and karate kicks and all of that. And I just remember as a kid, watching these kids, and they always defeated the bad guy. They just took them on as these young children. And ever since then, I mean, my family Scottish by descent and heritage, and all of the girls in my family always ended up doing Irish dancing and Highland dancing. And I had started Irish dancing at the time. And I went to my parents and I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to do karate. And at that time there was karate classes at the school that I went to. So they were like, okay, we'll put you into karate. And so just because that was available to me at the time, that's the martial art that I initially got into. And I had a really amazing coach and he pretty much became like a second father to me. I mean, Through my teenage years, I was a little bit rebellious and naughty, but he really kept me on the straight and narrow, and he helped – kind of give me purpose and at that time it was, okay, you want to go for your black belt before you go to university and I strayed from the path for a while, you know, as some teenagers do. And that really brought me back and I managed to get my black belt in karate when I was eighteen. And I just I wanted to learn more. So after university I went to actually teach English in Thailand and I started Muay Thai there as well and signed up for an amateur Muay Thai fight. And after moving away from Thailand, I actually ended up in the Netherlands, where we discovered we both trained at the same jiu-jitsu gym. And at Tiger Muay Thai in Thailand, I had done one or two grappling classes, but I wanted to learn more about it and that's kind of what sparked my interest so the moment I got to the Netherlands I was like I want to know more about this jujitsu thing because throughout my life as a child or a teenager regardless of how much experience I had in karate it definitely gave me confidence to verbally stand up for myself but I didn't I still didn't feel like I had it in me to physically defend myself especially because I'm quite a small person and whenever I did kumite matches I was never very good at the fighting or or striking aspect of my martial arts and once I started jiu-jitsu I realized that regardless of the strength or size of my female or male counterparts that I grappled with I felt like if I had good technique I was in a space where I could control them and I could submit them and that's just what completely Blew my mind and kind of brought on this passion for jujitsu where I realized that it really does cater to maybe the smaller, weaker person. Because if you use leverage based technique and timing, you have the ability to win regardless of your size.
0: Yeah, I think especially when you, you know, on the street given that you most likely will then encounter an untrained person. Um, I do think that smaller people, because we're both tiny, team tiny. um, (laughs) 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 But that we have like definitely the element of surprise. And of course, we know where we want to go and not go. Because I started also with Kempo, kind of like, it was similar to karate, but different, but like similar. And there I also find, I remember then they said, yeah, yeah, then you kind of kicked him to the ground. And then you give them one more kick, and that's it. And I was always like, "Is it right?" Like, like the ground is such a whole different ball game. And um, I then myself had an experience that I had some sort of fight with, um, kind of mixed martial MMA fight with another lady who was actually a uh, a grappler. And I was like, "Oh my god, I don't know anything." I was like, "Oh my god, I'm, I was screwed on the on the ground. I was absolutely screwed." And that also for me was, uh, I mean, my brother was already. Been training jiu jitsu at the time, and he was always nagging me, like, Oh, you shouldn't start, and blah, blah blah. And I was like, No, I want to strike, blah, blah. but of course, I had to give in and be like, Yeah, this is something else. So, I think the thing is, like, with some traditional Budo arts, they do so many beautiful forms and it looks super nice, but indeed, the application is often missing, the sparring is often missing, and indeed, like, I encountered people also here in Germany that do like this traditional yu that they will also walk around with their black belts and some are they feel pretty um proud and they think they can really do something but then you know we were already teaching kids BJJ at that time so I had like what a 12 year old she was like kind of half the size of this other lady and you know before this lady knew it she was in a tight triangle and she had to tap out and I remember that she then sat there with cognitive dissonance that she was like what the hell just happened and others got the same because they may know a lot, but they never really learned how to apply it. So then, I mean, these youths they probably knew what three things well, but the things they knew well, they did well and they executed it. And I found it so fascinating that I saw also in them that then suddenly they didn't feel so secure anymore because they realized that they may know a lot, but the application, the sparring part is, is is missing. And when you rely too much on that you think you're competent but you never put it to the test in a safe environment, that, that can be kind of like a disheartening thing. Yeah.
1: I totally agree with you. And I like I'm one of these people, I, I have quite a rubber arm when it comes to putting myself in adrenaline type situation so when i was in the when i was in thailand they actually have a barbecue beat down at the end of every month where amateurs who've been training muay thai can sign up and there's not really a weight class people sign up and they write down their weight so that they can match you up as close to your weight loss more or less they're (laughs) kind of like we're gonna eyeball this and see how it goes and I remember being one of the only ladies who signed up and the other lady that signed up was about 20 kilograms heavier than me and I was quite big-headed at
0: the time because (laughs) that counts (laughs) it really does count I mean with striking especially I mean holy okay yes and and um, at the time,
1: I think it's because I was like, oh, I've got a background in karate. I've done like a fair bit of Muay Thai training. I was like, it'll be fine. This chick has just arrived here and done one month training. And on the evening, she was so nervous. And she was like lying on the ground and really worried. And I remember thinking like, wow, okay, she's really nervous. And I'd done a lot of competing at the time. I felt quite calm and collected. Obviously, I could feel the adrenaline. And once the match started, I felt like, okay, it's an amateur fight. We're going to feel each other out a little bit, some punches, some kicks. Mm -hmm. And you know, fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. She is 100% a fighter because the moment that bow went, (laughs) she came at me swinging. I almost got knocked out in the first round. I was wearing my contact lenses. One contact lens fell out. And after the first round, I was like, hanging with my arms over the, the ring in the corner. And I was like, wow, this is, this is a brawl now. I'm just going to go in there swinging. But because she was so much taller than me in the second and third round, every time I threw a punch and she threw a punch, she'd connect. I wouldn't connect. And, um Gores, you were out of reach yeah <laughs> so, so um it was a very interesting experience very eye-opening experience and made me realize like in a striking scenario <laughs> size and strength and all of that really does count it was also very humbling because you know i was quite big-headed about the whole scenario initially and then afterwards i realized like wow you, you really do need good technique and i guess that's also what made me really
0: enjoy jiu-jitsu And yeah, (laughs) that was my Muay Thai experience. But 20 kilos, I mean, that is a lot. I mean, like, I always say also to Alex, like, I do not mind. Uh, I mean, I'm usually always, you know, uh, also in competition, I tend to fight ladies, usually 15 kilos heavier than me, because often there's not people in my, in my, um, in my bracket, in my weight class. but of striking i would really say no because the amount of damage they can do to you is just so much more because they can put just so much more weight behind those kicks and punches like that's insane like jujitsu in that regard is also nice because in the end like yeah well of course accidents can always happen but in the end if they get you i mean you're a tap away from (laughs) kind of freedom in a competition scenario of course i mean like self-defense is a whole different ball game But, but 20 kilo, I mean, especially also because what do you weigh like 50 something kilo? I mean, then also like if you, the difference is even greater. Like if you, if you would weigh 70 kilos and she would weigh 90 kilos, like, of course there's still a huge impact, but it's like, not like when, when you were 50, she's 70. That's almost like, I don't know. It's almost like, almost double. Like if you percentage wise, how much more she can give, like, that's insane. Yes.
1: And afterwards, I mean, I remember after the fight, I was obviously quite upset and a little bit embarrassed because there was a huge audience, but everyone was like, wow, you know, you you really showed grit in there and perseverance and um the thing is because i was so worried about my face that i never checked any of her kicks so afterwards i realized my ribs were quite sore and it was in thailand so i got on my little scooter and drove to the Seven Eleven and uh, (laughs) really wanting to buy some ice so i could ice my ribs and they were out of ice and i remember buying a tub of uh, ben and jerry's ice cream and i was like okay i'm just going to sit at home and feel sorry for myself and uh Put, a, put an ice cream on my <laughs> ribs to try and you know cool down after the fight so that match after that match like fast track a few years later just coming back to maybe like uh, panic attacks or things that happen in the gym um i was one of the only ladies for some time because our, our gym was a really new gym and At Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, we do what we call fight simulations. So because it's also Jiu-Jitsu for self-defense, we sometimes put on just sparring gloves and you have a striking opponent so that you can practice the clinch position, leg hook takedowns or whatnot, and then getting your striking opponents to the ground. It's mostly Jiu-Jitsu based, but I remember this one day I walked in. I was the only girl on the mat at the time and I remember really not wanting to do the striking that day. And, uh, we had, a uh, um, kind of an MMA fighter guy at the time. He had been training at other jujitsu gyms. And when it was, uh, his turn to spar with me, he took me to the ground and he got into the mount position and he wasn't hitting me hard, but he was sitting up and like simulating that he's like throwing strikes to my face. They were obviously like tagging me on the face, but really gently. And I remember like mm-hmm. starting to not be able to breathe. And I just had this feeling like I, I couldn't catch my breath and I was, I was beginning to panic and I had been subject to panic attacks, uh, at Farsi. So I kind of understood what was about to happen. And I just said to him like, time, time we have to call it now. And I ran to the bathroom by myself and I sat in the bathroom. And at that time I hadn't even done a trauma course on how to like reground people. But I remember sitting in the bathroom on the floor, like crying, mm-hmm. but also trying to regulate my breathing. And I sat there for about five to 10 minutes and I was like, yeah, it's okay. Like, you know, just trying to bring myself back. And, um, really kudos to my teammates because I walked back onto the mats and I sat down and one of them looked at me and they're like, are you okay? And I started crying again. I was like, I just had a panic attack. And these, these big muscular buff men, they they came up to me and they're like, are you okay? And, um, one of my teammates, Dom, he, so the next round started and I was like, no, 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 I'm going to sit this one out. And he said to me, Mm -hmm. he's like, let's get back on the horse. Let's go nice and gently. And I know that this, the strategy can work for some people and not, but I really appreciate him for doing that because I got up and we very slowly started from standing, you know, he simulated one or two strikes, gave me an opening to do like a double leg. And once I got back into it, I was like, Oh, okay, everything's fine now. And I really appreciated that this room of like really strong men supported me at that time. I was, I felt really lucky for my teammates. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because they also could be like, oh, you know, she's just one of those, like, uh, you know, my not for her, you know, like, could also have been that narrative, right? So I think, and also for the listeners here, like, trauma, when you have a trigger or a panic attack, it often just means that your fight or flight, we call this the sympathetic nervous system, gets aroused. So it takes, um, it turns off your rational brain, it goes offline, which means that you can't really think, you cannot rationalize your way out of there. So you're in this fight and flight or freeze or fawn, depending which one your nervous system thinks is the best strategy to escape this perceived threat. Whether there is real, real threat or not, that's of course always discussion, but at the moment, your amygdala in your brain, your nervous system thinks that there is this threat. Now, what then Steph did when she went into the, bathroom probably just kind of like breathing slower trying to get your like your heart rate down because the moment that you can activate your parasympathetic nervous system again that's when your rational brain turns online again so then you can rationalize and then you can also talk to yourself you're like I'm okay all's fine and step by step get back so you kind of finish the circle Like there is a perceived threat, your nervous system and your body reacts to it. And then in the end, you finish it. So everything kind of is fine. What happens with people with trauma is that they don't finish the cycle. So they get stuck somewhere. So they kind of remain in this fight and flight state, which is, of course, super tiring. But also they can't do much because the rational brain is mostly offline, which is why if they cannot get out, they need other people, coaches, athletes, training partners to interrupt that so that they can step by step complete the circle. So what I find so good also is like I mean I like this thing. I'm also kind of of the same mindset that when you fall off a horse you need to get back on the horse. But of course the way how you get back on the horse is different. Like we had lately um Oktoberfest in Munich and one of our teenage ladies got sexually abused by uh, one of the drunk guys there and um later there's a girlfriend grabbed her wrist in class and she just completely froze and started shaking and all that. Like She was not there. But there also I told her, like, okay, I got her back and then with, with reorientation uh, activities and I got her moving again, it's very important to get people moving again. And I think also with that with you had stuff, um, they just kept, got you moving. So also with this girl, like on a later day, she came also to self-defense uh, training and I very gently grabbed her wrist and just that already. And she knew what I was going to do, but immediately she froze up. But I kind of in the moment kept on talking with her, getting her to move. So she moved really through this because sometimes you will still freeze or still have like a moment of that. Sometimes you cannot avoid that because that's just like how your nervous system at that point is wired. But when you can get yourself or your, your, your partner can get you moving, then you move through it. And I think that is so healing because very slowly they worked with you and then it kind of was fine. And I'm also pretty sure that next time it was probably all right. For one, of course, they will probably pound you less and they will just, you know, a bit more. They understood that they had to recalibrate and just increase that all a little bit. So it was for them also a good learning moment. So I think that was really a beautiful example.
1: Yeah. And uh, um, I guess that's also what inspired me to want to know how to deal with that more because I had that experience myself too. But I was very lucky with the general ethos and uh, culture at the gym that they really did support me in that moment and I always wondered like was it because of the Muay Thai fights like is that the reason that I maybe panicked in that moment because I like took so much like shots to the head in that moment and then did I feel also a little bit helpless in that fight simulation
0: I always wondered about that yeah I think like I mean what I what I like about stand-up striking is like you're both on your feet like you're much more mobile like you can you know, depending on situation, but usually you can still run away or you can create some distance. But when somebody's sitting you on the ground, I mean like you are not so mobile anymore. And then when they also rain punches on you, it's like a completely different ballgame. I mean, it's like this this typical stopos what they always say, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. We also often in jujitsu we also add sometimes gloves. Not hard, but just like Please know that they are there, like, and you will have to protect your face, which opens up other things like an armbar or something else, like, and um, it, it completely changes the game. And to also to our guys, when we also have our sport jujitsu classes, when we do something with guard pulls, like, I'm not a guard pull fan. I like takedowns and all that sort of thing, but I do tell them, like, when you like it, it's fine. But do realize this is really sports jiu-jitsu and I highly do not recommend this for self-defense. So we always make sure and sometimes also there, we just add the gloves just to get things a little bit real again. Because then you also realize we had one time just for yeah for the 5-5 Fry Fry method, we had a bunch of our kind of more like sports uh, com- competitors, uh, uh, teens. And I asked them that I could just film that we did just a few exercises that I wanted to film so that we could teach that to other to our students and what i realized was that they were actually pretty dysregulated because it was very um confronting them because they were just used to sports jiu-jitsu so yes they had to do mostly similar techniques that they have done already at least 50 times in competition because they competed already a lot but the setting was different there were punches involved. There was, I mean, we build up there are like a bunch of games how you just build up from super like um, gentle to like tough depending on where somebody is at. But I found it very fascinating to see that they technically are much better than the ladies that we train. However, the ladies that we train in self-defense have a completely different mindset because they want to get the hell out. And although their technique might not be as great, they are much more ferocious and they could handle the stress much more i mean that's why i think spar is so important because you learn to deal with stress however when you add punches in the mix that's a completely different thing and it's so hard to think when you just get punched all the time in the head like it's 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 really a different level
1: yeah. My head coach always says you have to be able to flip the switch between sports jiu-jitsu and self-defense. Like I'm not going to invert or go for a leg lock on a striking opponent. You're going to get punched. So you need to be able to flip between what is it that you're going to do in a sports jiu setting and then what you need to do to defend yourself. More, It's more controlling the person who's striking you and being able to protect yourself from strikes. So The ability to flip the switch is really important and it's good that you can remind your students be like hey guys yeah you can be a guard puller and this can be your game in competition but not recommended for a self-defense street fight situation because you end up at the
0: bottom of the fight of a striking opponent does your coach also say or give ideas how you can learn or practice to flip the switch because like it's um because we people like we many people come also guys I have, we have now a bunch of new uh, jiu Jitsu guys. And um, we just did side control and I was bottom and I just framed a little bit my arm against the throat to create some distance. And he immediately was like, oh my God, why that's so much pressure, right? Even though it really like wasn't like for them, yes, right? But uh, in a few weeks or a few months, they would also be like, what I found that. But what I also was thinking was like, um, to them, they are still very controlled and they have, they really need to step over this kind of little obstacle of like how much control, because in the end, society tells us like, you know, we shouldn't fight or that the the violence is bad. I mean, I think it's a much more nuanced uh, discussion, but let's just say violence typically is bad. You should control yourself also verbally. But then, of course, when you're taught this, how do you know when you're actually in a dangerous situation, how much self-control is then actually appropriate? Because there are moments where you should definitely let go of quite a lot of control. You actually have. I mean, you can still when you are trained, you can still, of course, try to get control of the situation. But I mean, we all know, like in the real street defense, self defense situation, like you, it's it, it's there are no rules, right? And I wonder, like, does he have ideas? Like, how do you? I mean, you can you can put a lot of things in scene. You can definitely train that. Like we have also we also offer in in our method we have some games you can play to um, overload the nervous system and also how you can like deload them again. Does your coach also have ideas or has games for that? I think uh, maybe it's just also
1: practice. So once every two weeks we have a fight simulation class specific to one person putting on the gloves and the other person not having any gloves. And one person's goal is to purely focus on being able to show where the strikes are, whereas the other one has to use their jujitsu jitsu And it's not fight club, right? No one's meant to be throwing strikes and beating each other up, but it's more just so that you can do your jujitsu, with the understanding that there are um, strikes in the mix as well. So I think maybe just from a practicing perspective to, okay, guys, tonight we're putting the gloves on. So now you flip the switch in your mind on, on how to go from a sports jitsu perspective to I'm controlling the strikes, I'm controlling the head. And his philosophy is like, Control comes first. And even in a sports setting, that is the case as well. If you don't have the ability to control your opponent, they're going to get frames in and they're going to create distance and space, um, but more so against a striking opponent. So I think it's just the incorporation of that fight simulation class, which allows for people to be able to practice for that scenario as well. And then we also have our normal sparring sessions where both people don't wear gloves and we just do jiu-jitsu on jiu-jitsu. Um, sometimes we have uh, playful games, not so much from a striking perspective, but uh, one of my favorite games in jiu-jitsu is we play tennis. Mm-hmm. So the idea of tennis is that I have a tennis ball in one hand and you have a tennis ball in one hand. And we start our jiu-jitsu role. So already we're kind of... Um, Limiting ourselves because it's really hard. Constrained. Yes. But if I manage to submit you, then because I submitted you, I take your tennis ball. (laughs) So I'm even more limited. So for the rest of the round, I have to strategically defend with the lack of hands um, in order to be able to complete the round with two tennis balls. So the victor of that round is the one who ends up with two tennis balls. And there's a bit of strategy involved because if you submit someone within the first one minute, then you've got four minutes or whatever left where you've got two tennis balls and you have to control the fight without getting submitted so that's quite a fun playful game
0: and we track our scores and see who ended with two tennis balls however many times so basically if to beat that game you want to control them and only in the end submit them so you only very little time left to have the two balls yeah. but, I, but <laughs> I like that i like that game we also play the game and also um often when i realize somebody's using way too much strength i give them a ball i just give them constraints. Yeah, then I just take the the power away or at least partly because they cannot use that hand. I like that constraints led approach because you then also are forced to think outside of the box and you have to be more creative and playful because you can't rely on the, you know, your go to techniques because you know, one arm is compromised. So I like that very or two when you when you're successful.
1: Yeah. And then, um, maybe not so much with the tennis balls, but positional sparring also assists with that as well. So one night we'll say, okay, um, the only submission you're allowed to try and catch on people is arm bars tonight or triangles. Mm -hmm. So even though people have full range of motion and their hands are available, then they have to focus on, I mean, if someone's favorite game is triangles or chokes. Now they have to really focus on where they can see the armbars from what positions and start creating the pathways to that submission. So it's also nice to give someone a focus or everyone a focus so that they're not neglecting certain positions or, or certain submissions and then they have an opportunity to practice those as well.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes you have to kind of, quote unquote, force your students because we also have a bunch here. They're like, yeah, but these free things work so well. I'm like, yes, they work now. But eventually the people here will find out how, to, you know, they will find solutions and you will also meet people in competition that know how to deal with that. And then you have nothing else to give. So sometimes we we play many of these games just to make sure <laughs> that we constrain them to such a point that they have to, go out of the box and go out of their comfort zone because there's also many that I know that they're really resistant to learning new things because then they're like, yeah, but it doesn't work. It's like, not yet. It will. And still, I often remind them there are, I think from white, blue, purple, at least these three belts, you kind of need to learn everything there is to know. I mean, you can't, but like, you know, you have to kind of try out everything that that somebody, whether it's the internet, whether it's your coach, whether it's a seminar or whatever, even if it is not going to be your favorite technique. Because I learned things that I have very short arms and there are some like a loop choke is for me hard to get. I mean, once I get it, it's tight, but it's hard for me to get my arms all wrapped around the necks. However, I also have a few very skinny... Um, practitioners with long arms and they can just slap it up so easily like they surprise you so i'm also like as a coach i need to know it and i need to know it well enough that i can teach it somebody else even if it's not my my thing that i would use in competition or sparring necessarily but i need to know it also because if i spar with somebody who is my weight class but just different body types so i'm a bit like shorter and they are like skinnier and like taller that i need that i can understand what i can Can expect can anticipate that probably techniques like that they might do that on me because it might fit their game very well and we always try to make sure that people don't get too set in their ways that they adopt more like a growth mindset and not a fixed mindset so i think therefore these games i think are just so great because also the stakes are low so it's not super competitive so because when people remain playful then You get in positions you never were before That you're like, okay, I don't know what to do. I've never been in here. Let's find out. Whereas when stakes are high, people tend to, you know, egos all pop up and then they tend to just go for their three things that they do well. So no, I think that's great. I think that's really great. Yeah, exactly. So let's turn a little bit back to your role as a trauma-informed coach because you're one of our graduates have you noticed differences, or had did you have uh, occurrences now? Ever since you learned how to be trauma informed, how to hold space, how to interrupt if there if there was a trigger or a panic attack, do you have any examples that you want to share that are also our listeners, like maybe they experience similar things, and you can guide them through like what you did and and what worked and why.
1: Sure. Um, one of the most empowering things about being a female instructor and being so supported by my head coach is I feel like I'm in a space and in a position at the gym where I have the ability to make a call on a situation or scenario. And um, I, I did have a situation between two students where one approached one in isolation just outside the parking lot of the jiu-jitsu school, but it was very, a very in, inappropriate A situation that occurred and left my one student feeling very anxious about coming back to the gym. And I remember the one day they came in and I could see that they were getting worked up and upset. And I removed them from the gym and I was able to reground them with breathing exercises and just get them to a space of calm and safety where they could open up to me about what had happened. And I had to make a call that day. I stood there and I I saw my students and the inner turmoil and confusion about being approached and feeling unsafe and uncomfortable. And I had to make a call that day. And I was like, I cannot have this other student come back to the gym and continue to roll because at the end of the day, jujitsu is an extremely intimate sport. So if someone's going to be inappropriate, How can you allow them back into the gym where they are going to continue to roll with other students in very close proximity if this is something that they have done? And I was really lucky that day because I went to my head instructor and I said, we have to ask the students to leave. We can't have someone like that on our mats. And this is no longer going to be a safe space for the person who approached me or who I talked to because if that other student is around then we're allowing them to be there and he ha- i had his full support he was like you do what you need to do and i sat down with that person and i said listen this is what's come to my attention it happened you know outside the parking lot of the gym and unfortunately i i can't trust you with rolling with any future students so you can't be a part of this gym and i felt really empowered i felt like i made the right decision my student felt relief when I said that this person is no longer going to be at the gym. And I do not think I would have had the confidence, the tool set or the ability to approach that scenario and set boundaries and put my foot down and, um, actually, if I hadn't done the course, because it made me realize what is appropriate at a jiu-jitsu school. It also assisted me in how do I reground this person who's in turmoil and confused and felt like it it was their fault that they were approached this way. And I I was furious, but at the same time, I remained calm and I was able to, for myself, verbalize and be able to be confident and set a boundary there. And I felt so powerful. (laughs) I felt like I felt like I had done good for my gym, for our culture, for our ethos. And uh, that was like a really special moment in my growth as an instructor.
0: Also daring to have the uncomfortable conversation because that's one of my um, criticisms to many other coaches out there that are like, oh, you know, I don't want drama. But I'm like, but when you avoid drama, that's how drama is created or goes way way out of line um, and I think also like if, if people think oh you know I'm so badass because you know I'm a martial artist instructor blah blah but if you do not dare to have the uncomfortable conversations how badass are you because that's the most difficult thing I mean everything is fun and games when people are happy everything runs well everybody behaves well but what if somebody doesn't and somebody does something really highly inappropriate so I think it's also you should be proud definitely for daring to do it and also handle it in a calm Manner and indeed that you kept the other students safe because that's, of course, the other question. Do you want to avoid drama so much that um, that person then stays, but therefore many other people leave? That kind of like you lose in the end more members because if you lose one, but you keep the majority simply because you create a safe space, I think that should be a no brainer. But of course, you need to stand in your own power and be confident in yourself and your ability. And of course, I mean, you have the backup of your of your of your head coach, like that. You also have support that you can do the right thing. So I think that is indeed huge, and I think we need so much more of that because everyone, regardless of gender background, like we can make mistakes, we can do inappropriate stuff, but we do need to be called out for it, so that we also can learn for it. I mean, and out, I don't necessarily say immediately cancelled or all that, but if people don't tell you, you cannot change it. If it's kind of like a minor thing, or indeed when it's something bigger that you say, "Hey, sorry," but then you should find a different gym because that is this is not in alignment with our core values. Yeah, exactly. I believe um,
1: one for the greater good of all, and uh, you know, for the longest time, I'm a gentle natured person and uh, definitely a people pleaser at heart. So having to do something like that was actually really difficult for me, but I felt. I felt like I had really accomplished something, not only for myself, but for my gym. And regardless, I mean, this was maybe a a little bit more of a serious scenario. But as you mentioned, this can be with regards to anything that happens on the mat, on the mat etiquette, off the mat etiquette. It can be a minor misdemeanor. But you need to be able to nip things in the bud or de-escalate something before it escalates. And that's something that I learned in that scenario. And as you mentioned, it can be a slap on the wrist scenario where you're like, hey, this isn't good etiquette at the gym, so can you please change something? And And then you can give people a second chance. And then there are other scenarios where... On a case-by-case basis, you can say, listen, this was inappropriate and it's not in line with what we do here. So we're going to have to ask you to leave.
0: Yep. I think it's so important because in the end, you decide, it's your gym, you decide what kind of audience you want to attract. You decide what your core values are. And um, I think when you create them, you also have to maintain them because otherwise it has no value anymore. And it's easier said than done. But I think that is very, very important. Yeah,
1: you step into a leadership role once you, you know, take on the role of a coach or instructor. And I remember when I was doing my training to be a Gracie Jiu Jitsu instructor, our head coach said, you are going to have to have difficult conversations. And only after that one did I realize, oh, yeah. You're right. I'm in this leadership role. There are times where I'm going to have to have difficult conversations, but you actually, you get better at them. And through experience, you learn how to handle them in a calm way where people actually understand maybe what they've done wrong and they can grow from the scenario because a boundary has been set with them. And uh, yeah, you can maintain a
0: really good uh, culture and ethos at your gym. Yeah, I think that's really great. So that's this huge uh, growth on your part. And I mean, it, it's it's always growing, like you're never done learning, but I think this is a huge, huge milestone. And uh, me also as your coach, I'm very, very proud of you. <laughs> it comes to, to the trauma-informed part. So I'm very proud. And I hope, of course, that um, the people listening here, like maybe they can think back, what are moments where you wanted to say something? Maybe also as a student to a fellow student, maybe you saw... Um, somebody say something totally inappropriate to the other and you kind of wanted to say something but you didn't dare like think about that I think about what kind of ways are there to do that like for instance like it doesn't have to be super confrontational like uh, what I also once had was that I heard one student say something to another student and kind of backing this person in the corner I could sense that it didn't feel comfortable so I just went there like hey guys what's up what are you talking about I just was there with my presence. So I wasn't even directly saying, like, what are you doing? Like, I would if I, you know, but in this some instance, we have to kind of learn and try out. Sometimes it's just like, like, oh, I have something to ask you. Can I come in? That's also how you can kind of let somebody escape of a situation. And always later you can ask, hey, are you okay? What, what was going on there? Do you want me to do something? There are like many, many things that are not like a full-blown war on this person, right? Um, sometimes I think that, that when we talk about Talking to people or calling them out—that people merely think it's so confrontational—but it doesn't have to be. It can also be very subtle. But I definitely think that we, y- you also as a student, um, you can do so much also for other people when you just kind of keep an eye out and just like, hey, what's up? What are you guys discussing? Uh, yeah. Or, or like, hey, I, I had a question for you. I saw you did this beautiful technique on me. Uh, could, could you show this to me? Like, there's so many ways to get people out of some uncomfortable situations. So that as the kind of the last thing then my last question so what is your favorite quote or question that is like how we will always end our podcasts this one actually came from the course
1: itself and it's just resonated with me so much but it's that transformation happens on the other side of fear and I love that so much because whenever I sign up for a new competition or agree to do a podcast or commentate on a jujitsu fight night. I want to do it, but I always have this feeling of anxiety and fear and, Mm -hmm. you know, those, um, those negative thought patterns. Am I going to be good enough? Am I going to mess it up? What am I going to do? And, um, when I remember that quote, I'm like, you're feeling this, but afterwards you're going to transform and grow so much from this experience. So take it for what it is. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be anxious, but afterwards there's going to be this expansion that happens. And I, every time I feel that I just remember the
0: quotes and then I get on doing what I'm doing. But I think it's also great if you have goals and you're not afraid, then they're not big enough. That's really like what I think. I mean, this year now I'm done with the ACL reconstruction kind of rehab. I mean, I still need more to do, but I will fight again in February. I start after three years because then COVID, then my ACL. And I'm also scared as hell. But it's a good thing. But look, I, we even have it in our geese inside. There's the quote. Yeah, you can see it. Yes, we have to quote inside our geese. So I always (laughs) like it. I like it when people wash their geese or also with the parents when they fold them or the kids that they can always see like transformation or growth happens on the other side of fear. Because I think fear is good. I think it's a good thing. It keeps us safe. But sometimes it also means that it shows us the edges of our comfort zone. Then it's that's where you work on courage and resilience. It's because courage just means that despite being being afraid, you're doing it anyway. And I think that is really what fosters growth and how you as a person on and off the mats will just thrive. Sister, thank you very much. Do you have anything else that you would like to share to our listeners? Feel free to do so. Thank you so much for this opportunity and being able to share a little
1: bit about my backstory and my jujitsu journey. And I look forward to seeing what else comes from this podcast. And I hope for the listeners that they learned a little bit uh, something about their themselves and um, their own journeys.
0: So, yeah, thanks for having me. Very welcome, I'm very happy and delighted to host you. In the notes, in the show notes, you will find how to contact stuff. If there are any people in the Johannesburg area, definitely check out Jitsa 4 Ways. I think, do you also have courses or is it like only regular training? Do you also have like like a few week courses? Do you have that too? Uh, We
1: do offer free self-defense seminars every couple of months, but uh, mostly just regular training. But we have a few different programs. So our Women Empowered Program, our
0: Combatives Program, and the Bullyproof Programs for the kids. All right. So if you want to know any more, uh, check the show notes, get in contact with Steph, and uh, I'm pretty sure she will sort you out. All right, Steph, thank you very much. And we talk soon. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Lorene. See you soon. Thank you, Steph, for sharing your experiences, stories, and insights. For anyone who wishes to get in touch and or train with Steph, please find her contact details in the show notes. On a different note, since this is the first ever episode, listeners using the promo code PODCAST get 10% off my Alive Align trauma-informed coaching for athletes and coaches and 10% discount on our signature program, The Five Drive Method. A six-week online program that helps athletes, training partners and coaches become trauma-informed. Optimal skill acquisition starts with safety. Learn how to create and maintain a safe learning environment and let the magic happen. I repeat, promo code podcast and is valid for seven days after airing. Grab it today and set yourself and your students up for success.